Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. This Encore Podcast was originally posted on April 7, 2016. A.O. Scott is one of America's foremost film critics. Since 2002, he shared the chief movie review slot at the New York Times with Manola Dargis. His book, Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, beauty, and truth, takes a look at reviewing and criticism at some of the challenges critics face and at some of the issues that roll across his mind every time he writes a review. I spoke with A.O. Scott at the end of February 2016. A.O. Scott, this book, you say in an afterword that it took you several years to actually put together and write. So what is the origin of Better Living Through Criticism? I kind of got the idea for it. I guess it was around 2011. I mean, I had been thinking, I'd been working as a critic for a very long time before then, and I always enjoyed occasionally reflecting on what I do, writing, as a lot of critics do, a piece on the state of the art or why everybody who complains about critics and what we do is wrong or apologizing for how I myself had been wrong. And it was a moment one of many such recent moments of what I think of as internet triumphalism, where there was this idea that all of the old media models and all of the old ways of doing things were in the middle of changing. And in particular, I started reading a lot of stuff, a lot of commentary about how critics were now going to be obsolete, that there was going to be Yelp and Twitter and Facebook, and there were all these great algorithms and user-generated reviews at Amazon and sites like that. So people like me who do it for a living were going to be obsolete and were going to be extinct. And some people were very happy about that. Others were bemoaning it as another sign that, you know, the internet was ruining everything and, and civilization was going to decline. And I started to think, well, what's really at stake here? And what would it mean to say that there were no more critics or no more criticism? What is it that professional critics do? And how does that differ from what criticism is? Like, is criticism just what professionals like me do in places like the New York Times? Or is it something deeper? Is it something more involved with how all of us experience and think about and evaluate works of art and our own experiences? And the trajectory of the book very quickly moved into the second category, into not so much the job of critics, although I have something to say about that in the book and about how it's practiced now and how it's been practiced as a vocation and a job in the past. But I found myself much more interested in the deeper philosophical questions, in a way, of what it is that criticism is as a way of thinking, as an intellectual discipline, as a mode of being in the world. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot because I've been doing theater reviews here on KPFA and talked to John Law and several other mm -hmm. people about this. But before we get into criticism itself, you raise something else, which I've been thinking about, you know, because I'm an interviewer. I've been doing it for a very, very long yeah. time. And yet at the same time, people think, well, I can always ask questions. <laughs> right, right. And it's not that different. Right. 
And, of course, then we go into another area, which is it used to be that there were experts in everything, and now are there? <laughs> it's two questions in a way. And, and I think you raise an important distinction in a way between amateurs and professionals. I always think of it on a couple of different analogies, one being cooking. You know, there are people who are wonderfully good cooks. I can cook. You know, I can have a dinner party and have some friends over and make delicious food that everyone is happy to eat. And sometimes, you know, you go over to a friend's house and you say, oh, you're such an amazing cook. This food is so good. You should open a restaurant. You should be a chef. And it's just not the same thing at all. I also think, you know, about stand-up comedians. And there are plenty of people who are funny and who can tell jokes. But to get up and do it six nights a week in front of a crowd of strangers is a craft and a discipline and a profession that is very, very hard and that engages you in a different way than being funny. So I think of it along those lines. People have opinions. People can talk about movies. People can say very intelligent and knowledgeable and insightful things about movies. But there's a difference maybe between doing that conversationally and having to get up every morning and do that week in and week out. There is the job aspect to it that I think is important and that I'm proud of. I'm proud of being a professional journalist, of being a professional writer, of being someone who can take my opinions and put them into a form that is readable and accessible and useful to other people. Whether that makes me an expert or not, expertise is a slightly different question because movies are a wonderful democratic art form, and ideally they belong to everybody and can be appreciated by anyone. But I think it is important for me to be, for any critic to be, and for any writer to be, as knowledgeable as possible and have something, again, to say that will be useful or enlightening or thought-provoking to readers. So it's not just a matter of unmediated opinion, of me just saying what I think and how I feel. I have to have something else to bring to the table. A.O. Scott, one issue involving experts is that when we look, say, at expert pundits, quote, unquote, <laughs> lately they've been wrong. <laughs> yes. And, you know, wrongness kind of comes with the territory. The longest chapter in this book is called How to Be Wrong. And it's partly about how certainty and expertise almost invariably lead to error in one way or, or another. It's always such a complicated thing because the mistrust of experts is in some ways a very healthy, democratic, and important response that there are people who are given some kind of authority. And it's important for other people, for ordinary people, for non-experts to be skeptical and to be able to challenge that authority. On the other hand, I'm very concerned about what I see as a kind of anti-intellectualism, of a kind of mistrust of knowledge and intellect and thought as automatically elitist or suspect. So I do feel like there has to be some way in a democracy, in a democratic culture to know what you're talking about. Well, of course, there is also the difficulty that we've come with the rise of the internet, which is a whole other area. And a lot of better living through criticism revolves yeah. on levels, both conscious and unconscious, with the internet. It has to do with the fact that algorithms now put us in a place where we only see what we want to see. Right. That becomes an additional problem. That's a problem that concerns me a lot. The narrowing of people's frames of reference and the fact that we can seek out and almost confine ourselves to communities of like-minded people and that a sense of a public space where all of us can get together and converse and argue. You know, democracy and the public sphere is always contentious or always should be, whether you're talking about the arts or politics or anything else. But this idea, and I tackle it more in the book, obviously, 
because of the subject matter and because of what I am thinking about in the realm of taste and culture and the arts, but it's not that different from how it is with, with politics and ideology, is that we assume these identities and we allow ourselves to become trapped in it. So the internet tells us, the Amazon algorithm tells us, you know, people who like this also like that. If you like this book, you might also like that book. And we're being kind of sorted and categorized according to behavior and according to sociological and demographic types or stereotypes. And it's very important to summon the will and the curiosity to break out of those, to jump the tracks and go look at what other people like and what other people are thinking and try to put yourself as much as you can into the shoes or to empathetically connect with other people and their tastes and their pleasures and their interests. The paradox is that, of course, the technology of our culture allows us to do that. There's nothing preventing us from exploring more widely than we do. And yet the effect is often that we're, we're on a narrower and narrower and more exclusive Well, track. when we're dealing with social media, it becomes harder to do or Amazon or Netflix. And, you know, I wonder, I don't want to get too far afield here, but I wonder about the, the new rise of bookstores might be a rebellion against algorithms. I think it absolutely is. I think that the return of the bookstore um, <laughs> and the return of the browsing, the return of... Because one thing that the internet, in a way, tries to do more and more, I think, I don't think this was necessarily true in earlier iterations of it, is to eliminate accident in a way to just sort of narrow and focus your attention so that the thing that could happen when you walked into a bookstore, maybe looking for a particular book and you found it, but two books over was the thing that was really interesting or really exciting, or you wandered into a into a section that you wouldn't have wandered into and picked something up and started reading it and got excited about it. And, and I, I think that that kind of browsing in the old pre-browser <laughs> sense, of, <laughs> sense of the world is something that's valuable. And I think that the resurgence of interest in, in bookstores very much reflects that, reflects a desire for a wider and a more eclectic and a more adventurous and more serendipitous relationship to culture. And I keep hoping that maybe this will happen with music and film, though it hasn't yet. It's complicated because the distribution systems are different. The gateways are different. With music, I think the decline of radio is such a big factor. When I was growing up, that was how you found out about new music. Right. And you could find out about all different kinds, different places on the dial. There were a lot of stations in, in every town that would be freeform and eclectic and have different kinds of programming at different kinds of day, and you could listen and discover stuff. I think that's a little bit harder now, even with the magic of Pandora and Spotify and Apple Music, that puts it all right at your fingertips, but doesn't necessarily give you the best tools to roam around. Hey, oh, Scott, let's talk more specifically about better living through criticism. Mm -hmm. And I want to focus here on the word criticism. Yes. Because when I interviewed John Lahr, who for many years was the chief critic at the New Yorker, theater yeah. critic, he spent a lot of time talking about the difference between criticism and reviewing. And in Better Living Through Criticism, you conflate the two. <laughs> I've always been aware of and kind of amused by that distinction, which always struck me as, as somewhat defensive, as trying to draw a line to avoid some kind of confusion that seemed dangerous in some way, so that a person doesn't want to be a mere reviewer, you know, you want to be a critic. But what the distinction is or where the distinction lives, I don't really know. I mean, reviews are a particular 
genre of writing, a particular format that exists where you kind of take up usually one thing at a time or sometimes in the columns of The New Yorker, two or three, and you write about them and you evaluate them and you give some kind of judgment on them. Now, I think that is a kind of criticism. I certainly don't think it's the only kind of criticism. But I think to say that that isn't criticism is maybe a little bit of wishful thinking and also, I think, ignores some of the extraordinarily important and lasting works of criticism that were, in fact, reviews. You know, you have 9,000 words that Pauline Kael published before she was at The New Yorker. I think she published in The New Republic on Bonnie and Clyde, which is one of the most important works of cultural criticism, you know, of the 1960s and in the history of movies. And that was a movie review. It was very long. It was sort of a pitch of intensity and literary accomplishment and, and intellectual fervor that might be unusual. But that was criticism and that was a review. You know, the first great American film critic was James Agee, and most of what he wrote was reviews. And you could say, well, the reviews that he wrote for The Nation were were closer to an ideal of criticism because um, he had more space and he wasn't being edited as hard as he was when he was writing for Time. I think the idea is that criticism is somehow more accomplished or smarter or more ambitious or, or more capacious than reviewing. But when I'm reviewing movies, I'm trying to write criticism. One of the differences that he talked about, that Lar talked about, was that a lot of reviews give plot, character, whereas a criticism would put everything in some kind of context. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, when I read you or Manola Dargis or you know, Wesley Morris's terrific material from Grantland, yeah, yeah, what I'm looking at is criticism, and yet when I'm reading. Capsule reviews and entertainment sure. weekly. I'm not. Although I think that the very short form has produced some some very fine criticism. I'm thinking of Robert Crisco's Consumer Guide, which is a, a monument of criticism that was all paragraph long with letter grade. So it was reviewing in, in the most basic sense. So I think it depends a lot on the sensibility of the person writing. Because look, there's also a lot of very long-winded and, and self-serious contextualizing non-reviewing criticism that's useless and terrible and, and unilluminating. So I don't think it tracks to the format so much as the skill of the practitioner. One thing about criticism or reviews is what filter the critic uses. Um, I mean, you talk in Better Living Through Criticism, A.O. Scott, you talk about what I guess Suzanne Langer discussed as feeling and form mm -hmm. at one end yeah. versus plot and content at yeah. the other. Uh, but there was also, of course, Tolstoy focused on the religious or ethical aspect, mm -hmm. Marx even more than that. How do you view that? I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people also focus these days, which kind of I don't like, on you know whether something will be popular or yeah. not. Yeah. I try not to be too closely wedded. That is – I don't try to approach what I do and what I write about programmatically in that I certainly have my own prejudices, my own beliefs, my own ideas about the ethical or the political or the spiritual dimensions of what I'm looking at. But I also believe and I try to argue for in this book the autonomy of the aesthetic as not only an area of creation, not only a class of objects, let's say, that are works of art, but as a domain of experience. And one thing that I'm trying to insist on in this book is that we give it room and respect in our lives. That is, that we don't rush to assimilate our responses to works of art immediately to 
other, perhaps more important, perhaps more urgent, perhaps more respectable concerns. So I'm kind of not interested a lot of the time, if I'm looking at a movie, if I agree with it, if it seems to be saying something about the world, about a, a social issue or about a political topic or to reflect a religious or ideological view of the world. Whether or not I agree with that, with what's being said at that level of content, isn't always so important to me. And the lens that I guess I try to adopt the most and the most consistently, my kind of default lens, is what I would call a humanist one which is to say that I think art does exist in the service of human dignity and of illuminating to us as human beings something of our condition, something of our lives. I think we, we have this extraordinary capacity as a species to represent ourselves to ourselves, to imagine ways of capturing and infusing with meaning our own experiences in the world and, and making beautiful and pleasurable things out of that work. And I think that I try as a critic to find that, to respond to that. And I tend also to get angry or to reject work that fails in that or that cheapens human experience in, in some way. So I think I'm kind of a little bit old-fashioned maybe in that way, although I, I find other approaches very useful and I like to read politically-minded critics from both the left and the right. I think there are some actually extraordinarily gifted people writing about art and culture in Christian publications right now that I've recently discovered. But also, I, you know, grew up and was educated reading a lot of the great Marxist critics and literary intellectuals who certainly impressed me and influenced my thinking. But in the end, I do fall back on a kind of humanism, a, a sort of a, you know, you might even say secular humanism. My main complaint when I read a review or a criticism that just gets me is when I see a critic reviewing something not in terms of what it is, but in terms of what the critic would like to see. That makes sense to you? Yes. I've seen that in some reviews of my own book. I've discovered it on the other side. I won't name any of them. I've been reading with great interest all of the, the reviews that have come out Better Living Through Criticism. And I look at some of them and I say, well, fine, you know, but that's not what I was doing. That's not the book I wrote. Maybe that's the book you wish I wrote or, or that you would have written, but that's not what I did. I am conscious of that because I think that one of the checks that you have against your own ego or getting lost in your own head or just becoming intoxicated with your own beautiful prose, if you're a critic, is this object that you need to be writing about and that one of your main jobs, I think the great American critic and, and journalist John J. Chapman said, criticism is right description. And I think that's really true. You have to get the thing right. You have to try to figure out what it is and how you're going to describe it. One area that you do cover in the book is popularity versus quality, and that, that's a big area. In addition to that, because this kind of works with that, I know what I like, and yet I also know that sometimes I like things that are lousy. And when <laughs> I like something that's lousy, on some level there's a difference between my taste and what I think is good. Yeah. That's a very interesting question. And one of the questions that threads through the book is a version of that. It's how do we know what we like? How are we confident in that? How do we trust and understand and make sense of our own taste? And the appeal to popularity is, is a fascinating one because, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, why should we care about what anyone else thinks? Why should we trust anyone else's taste? And we can have plenty of examples in history of things that were wildly popular that are terrible. But then the question is, well, how do we know <laughs> that they're terrible? Or how did that judgment change? And 
you're right. There is the whole category, a category that I approach with some caution of the guilty pleasure, of the thing that you like even though you know it's not that good. The guilty part has always struck me as a little too puritanical. We should also be able to, in a way, do the work of defending our own taste. I mean, it's hard when you're a critic because you kind of can't do that in quite the same way. Like, I can't really say, or it's, it's, it's harder to say, or you have to find a slightly different way to say in the course of a column or a review, well, yeah, this is a lousy movie, but I had a great time. Because someone will say, no, wait a minute. You know, your job right. is to defend your taste and not just to say you had a good time, it was a lousy movie, but to tell me why you had a good time and what that was worth and tell me why it's actually might, might be a, a good movie. So I sometimes do enjoy doing that, like looking at movies that, my readers might not expect me to like, that I might not expect myself to like, and that I don't entirely embrace as achievements in cinema, but that nonetheless work in a way to give pleasure to their audiences. I mean, I'm thinking in the last year, a movie that really did that for me was Furious 7. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that, you know, Furious 7 is a masterpiece of cinema and, and that it will be shown in repertory in the future, you know, alongside the great works of Antonioni or Orson Welles or, or whoever. But it was a movie that pleased me a great deal because it seemed to know its audience very well and had a kind of generosity with respect to its audience and its characters. And it was not aspiring to be more than a lot of fun. And it was a lot of fun because it was so committed in a way. I found it very moving. It's about a group of friends who, you know, they go all around the world fighting bad guys and driving cars. And you, I mean, the, the plots are never entirely coherent and neither are the action sequences. They drive cars out of helicopters and they do all these crazy stunts. But it's also just about what good friends they are and how they're all there for each other. It's a really fun movie. And that, for me, was an example of popular entertainment fulfilling its mandate and giving the audience what it wanted in a very genuine and uncynical and generous way. Going back to comments that Wesley Morris made in The yeah. Times, yeah. you know, it's the ultimate multicultural movie. It absolutely is. And it's kind of a rebuke to ideas that have been around for a very long time in Hollywood that you can't do that, that especially a global audience will not respond to too many non-white actors, even though, of course, a global audience is mostly non-white people. But yes, you have this multicultural and mixed gender group of people. And it's a very utopian movie in exactly that way. It's about how I think the way I put it in my review is that, you know, gasoline is thicker than blood. That is what brings these people together and bonds them into a family is stronger and realer to them than race, nationality, gender, sexuality, any of those things. And, and that, you know, that's a beautiful thing to see. Also in the area of quality, I once spoke with Mark Doty, the poet, mm. and I said I can look at a film or a book or theater and make some kind of determination. I can't do that with poetry. And he said, well, a good poem is what moves you, mm -hmm. which still comes back to that same question. You know, can you like a crappy poem? Right. I was giving a talk recently and someone quoted something, I'll, I'll have to paraphrase it, that Roger Ebert used to say about how your heart will never mislead you, your head might, and that the truth lies in your emotional response rather than in your intellectual response. I'm not sure that I entirely believe that because I think you can be moved by things that are manipulative or dishonest or, or meretricious. You know, movies are extremely powerful, emotional 
machines in a way and can do things to you with music and with editing and with all kinds of associations. So ever since I had small children, any movie that involves, you know, a parent saying goodbye to a child or a child in danger or a separation and a reunion of parents and children will just wreck me. And there are a lot of terrible movies that do that. So the emotions are not an entirely trustworthy guide. But on the other hand, they're what you can be sure of. They're a necessary starting point. I would say your, your mind, your sense, the rational part of you can overrule your emotions, but you have to start there. The thing you know for sure when you start to think about the poem or the piece of music or the painting or the movie or whatever it is, the thing you know for sure is your emotional response. But you may qualify it. You may correct it. You may complicate it. I was talking to another writer, I don't remember who it was, who made the comment when talking again about poetry and what's good poetry, that this writer who teaches poetry gave the class Emily Dickinson mm -hmm. and discovered that, wow, more people responded to Dickinson than to other poems, and that said something else as well. I think that's true. I mean, it's complicated because, you know, people are different and you don't just want to say that the poem or whatever it is, because we're back in a way in the popularity and quality question. Is it, are we quantifying it? Are we saying, you know, that the thing that moves the most people is the best? Or is it, you know, the thing that moves maybe fewer people but more intensely? Or the thing that keeps on moving people for the longest over time? I mean, there's a lot to be said and written about that, about why things last and how they last and how... It is remarkably the case with Emily Dickinson that somebody who was read by almost exactly nobody in her own lifetime and, you know, if you had said in any time in the 19th century, well, the most important, the decisive, the great American poet right now is Emily Dickinson, they wouldn't have even said, you know, no, you're wrong. That's crazy. They would have said, who? What? And, you know, 100 years later or so, that is absolutely a consensus view. No one would argue otherwise. You know, people would say, well, Whitman, too. But you would say, well, them, Dickinson and Whitman. So it's fascinating how that changes and how, in a way, the power of some works of art is unlocked at a later time, kind of stays latent or hidden before it's, it's uncovered. And some of the work, by the way, of that uncovering is precisely done by critics who can bring things back. One of the things that criticism is very good for and good at doing is correcting the oversights maybe of earlier criticism, but of, of bringing back into attention and back into circulation work that had been neglected or forgotten or misunderstood. Well, obviously in film, it happens quite frequently. I'm not sure if Rules of the Game counts because that movie may not have ex really actually existed until the 50s. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And there are a great many movies of the 40s and 50s and earlier, you know, that were neglected or, or panned or flopped. Some movies of the 50s that were kind of too cynical and too dark for their own time movie like Ace in the Hole, the great Billy Wilder uh, movie with Kirk Douglas or, you know, uh, Sweet Smell of Success, which is now a widely acknowledged masterpiece and just such a great view of Manhattan in the 50s, but also a, a, a very prophetic work about the, the power of the media and how it can be abused. And also an amazing movie about one of the only great movies that's ever been made about publicists and press agents, you know, with uh, with, with Tony Curtis as, as Sidney Falco. But at the time, those movies were 
kind of had a mixed reception and didn't do very well commercially and 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 kind of fell by the wayside until a later time maybe a you know a more fully cynical time was able to to get their messages more clearly well that happened on broadway with chicago obviously yeah, yeah. was a face in the crowd a successful movie when it first came out it, it was yeah and it's still i mean i remember when i saw it for the first time in college and just how that, I think, is a little bit later in the 50s. So that's kind of post, that's like 57. And Ace in the Hole might have been a little too too early. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say why these things succeeded or, or, or Well, failed. a movie that I saw that was a big success but seemed to have fallen in some kind of disrepair, and I saw it recently, and it just amazed me, was The Apartment. Oh, yeah. Well, that did win Best Picture. Um, <laughs> that movie is just fantastic. It was funny because for a while, Billy Wilder, when the auteur theory, when Andrew Sarris was kind of building the pantheon of, of the American cinema, he had some kind of bias against Wilder, that Wilder was too writerly, didn't count. I think that's one of the things that Sarris ultimately kind of came around on and corrected. So in a way, you know, you could say Billy Wilder did not get the same kind of critical respect that some of his peers did among kind of the critical cognoscenti of his time. But boy, his work stands up. I mean, yeah, The Apartment, Some Like It Hot. I mean, the, these movies, you can't imagine ever not wanting to watch them. I saw something on 538 website in which someone was asking the question, well, how did Oscar winners do after they won their Oscars? Uh -huh. <laughs> and he was judging the quality of the films based on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, Rotten Tomatoes. It's no surprise that 538 would find some affinity with it because Rotten Tomatoes is basically a kind of a polling site. It's aggregating opinion and assigning it a numerical value. As a source of sociological information, let's say, it's not useless. It can be interesting to see a record of critical opinion and of public opinion, and people do check in sometimes. And, and I know that people sometimes although it pains me to think that they do, people do sometimes use it as a kind of a consumer advice tool. So people will check and say, oh, well, that got in, that, that has an 83, so we can go see it. But criticism for me is always anti-data, is a disaggregating art, is, has to do with individual voices. One of Roger Ebert's criticisms of critics' voting groups before there was Rotten Tomatoes, his complaints about the National Society of Critics or the New York Film Critics Circle is... What's the good of, of having critics get together in a group and vote? You could get a lot more out of reading what any of the individual members had written about any film than, than at looking at how a whole group of them had decided was the best movie of the year. So I think that the hope is always that there will be enough people who are interested in going deeper in, you know, in clicking on the little button that will take you to the review and actually reading the review. It needs to be said, you know, in all modesty, that people have been managing to go to the movies for more than 100 years in great numbers by the hundreds of millions. And only a small fraction of those people have really been regular readers of, of reviews. So criticism, I think, exists in a way for people who are interested in criticism. If we can reach out and, and broaden that in various ways, that's fine. But in the end, people who want it will find it and find ways to get it. Hey, oh, Scott, I'd like to turn the subject to a couple of other issues, including diversity is one question. So let's, let's hit that one first. There was a terrific conversation between you and Manolo Dargis and Wesley Morris at the Times on the diversity issue. And Morris, who's African-American, 
made the comment that the problem wasn't the Oscars, but the fact that middle brow Oscar bait is white. Right. I agree with that. There are a lot of problems. I mean, the problem is also the film industry uh, and a system that is still very much controlled by white men who seek out and reward often younger versions of themselves. There are still a lot of meetings, let's say, where deals are being made and projects are being greenlighted, where there are no non-white faces and very, very few women in the room. And that perpetuates this kind of bias. I think that the specific problem with the Academy does have to do with its very narrow and I think kind of out of touch idea of prestige and of quality and of seriousness. You know, the Academy exists to project the most elevated and in a way the most pretentious view that Hollywood can of itself. Here we are being serious and putting on our tuxedos and we are, you know, we're not just a a bunch of hacks and, and salespeople and show business people. We are an academy of artists and scientists. So as a result, the movies that tend to be rewarded are fairly homogeneous in a number of ways that have not only to do with race, but sometimes with genre, with generational appeal. Movies that young people tend to like don't tend to get Oscars. Comedies very, very rarely get Oscars. The kind of performance that's a best picture winning performance is, you know, playing a long dead historical person or or suffering a terrible ordeal or, or having a disease or a mental illness, all of which is perfectly worthy. But You know, Melissa McCarthy, whose performance in Spy, I think, was one of the most extraordinary pieces of screen performance that I've seen in a very long time, is not going to get nominated for a Best Actress because acting is, you know, you have to be weeping and crying and screaming or, or, you know, fighting off a bear in the snow or whatever it is. The way that that extends to the question of race and of diversity is that certain kinds of stories don't get counted as serious. And certain representations, I think in particular, of African-American life are invisible to the Academy. The Academy has in the past nominated and rewarded black performers and films about black people, but that tend to fall within that rubric of prestige, to be about suffering and nobility or social problems um, or very admirable historical figures. But anything that I think partakes too directly of actual African-American popular culture as it also exists alongside the movies is not going to be taken seriously by the Academy. One way that I've said it a few times is is if, you you know, a movie about Ray Charles can win an Oscar, a, a movie about NWA will not. Creed, a movie about really about the struggles of a young African-American boxer with a very complicated background who's falling in love, who's has this this tender relationship with his mentor. That movie, Creed, is almost invisible to the Oscars, even though it's a wonderfully directed, brilliantly acted and happened to be quite popular movie. So I think that that blind spot, that myopia that, that Wesley was talking about is very much there. And it's a kind of a, an invisible or unconscious bias that's just built into the Oscars' notions of quality. And that's going to be a very hard thing to dislodge because that goes so deeply into the film industry's idea of its sort of myth of itself. Well, this one other corollary question, which kind of ties in with Idris Elba not being nominated, mm-hmm. which is that Beasts of No Nation was basically a TV movie that got a week. And it brings up the question of, you know, how do we judge Oscar, even in the context that we've judged it, when what's really happening is people like Steven Soderbergh 
and Martin Scorsese right. are moving over to what is no longer the little screen. Right, exactly. And these boundaries are going to continue to blur and to collapse. The talent will continue to migrate back and forth between movies and TV. And what is and isn't, I mean, you had an, another great example, a, a very strong film, one of the strongest in a long time from Spike Lee, Chirac, which was released by Amazon. And Amazon and Netflix are very new players in the feature film market. They're slightly less new players, but very consequential players in series, you know, what we used to call television. <laughs> um, I hate to use the cliche of the moment, but all of the business models are being disrupted. You had one of the biggest and most talked about acquisitions at Sundance Film Festival was Ken Lonergan's movie Manchester by the Sea, which Amazon bought for a lot of money, their newish division. And producer Ted Hope is in charge of that. There are a lot of smart acquisitions, people and a former film critic involved in that. So, right, what is a movie and what is TV? And we can forget about how the Academy is going to wrap its head around that. I think it will be a very long time or it'll take a while, given the biases and the and the histories of the people who are in the Academy, before they accept Netflix and Amazon as, as legitimate players in the field. But they're here, and the behavior of the audience is, is also changing. And the question of what fascinates me is the sort of question of, of how are people going to decide? People can now watch things, all kinds of things, wherever they want. You can watch it on your tablet. You can watch it on your laptop. You can watch it on your TV. You can also go out and buy a ticket and watch it. And people like to do that. This year, you know, the downward trend in, in ticket sales reversed a little bit. And people, because there were a lot of movies that people thought, hey, I want to go out and see this. So that's going to continue, but how it's going to sort out in terms of, of different genres or different styles or different types of entertainment or different companies or, or what artists are doing at a particular time, we're at the beginning of what will be a very complicated and for critics, just incredibly, in some ways, exasperating period because it means we're going to have to fight with our colleagues. All the, I mean, there's going to be all these sort of tug of wars between the TV critics and the movie critics about who gets what. This goes back to something I was thinking about, which is that a few years ago, the best movie of the year starred Meryl Streep and uh, Al Pacino and was directed by Mike Nichols. <laughs> and you couldn't review it because it was on television. Exactly. It was called Angels, it in, was America. Angels in America. And, it had, and before that, it had been, you know, it had been a, a remarkable play. And I felt the same way about The Wire. After it, at a certain point, I thought, well, this is the best motion picture narrative of our time. I mean, it was, yeah, it was made as a series on, on television, but but why can't I say that? <laughs> so, yeah, it gets very complicated, but I, I think that's wonderful. I mean, I think that also the rise of television and the attractiveness of television and in a way the, the kind of the, the artistic legitimacy that television and prestige that television now enjoys will put some pressure on movies, on filmmakers and on distributors and on studios to find what it is about cinema that is unique to kind of to, to focus in and refine their understandings of the identity of, of this art form. A couple of questions about the New York Times. Mm -hmm. How do you divvy up between you, Manola Dargis, Stephen Holden, and I really loved the work that Wesley Morris did on Grantland. Is he going to get some reviews? He's right now in this critic-at-large spot. He's writing about anything he wants, about popular music. He was writing about the Grammys, about television. He did a wonderful conversation with James Poniewozik, our, our new television critic, about the diversity question in television. 
Kind of the idea, I think, is that he'll come back. He kind of will give the second view. The way we divide it, I mean, Manola and I have been co-chief film critics now for almost 12 years. And the way that we work it is we just on kind of tried and true kindergarten principles, which is we take turns. So we get a list of movies and one week she'll pick first and the next week I'll pick first. If I did the last Coen Brothers movie, she'll do the new one. If I did the last, you know, Marvel superhero movie, she'll do this one. Or at least we'll have first dibs on it. And then we assign the rest. We give the list to Stephen, and he takes his choices. And then we have a very good roster of, of freelancers, some really talented writers who are willing to write for us and can write in the short form and have wonderful voices. Jeanette Katsoulis, Neil Genslinger, who's on, on staff at, at the paper and also writes about TV. Nicholas Rappold, Glenn Kenny. So we have a, a deep enough bench to feel like we've covered um, everything that needs covering and, and that, you know, Manola and I can concentrate on titles on the releases that, that seem most interesting and most, and most important. What do you think of a review that begins, I really hate Woody Allen, but dot, dot, dot? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I think you're kind of giving too much away. It's important to acknowledge and work through your own prejudices, but it would be more interesting if you started out telling us why. I think there's maybe a more artful way to do it. The way my review of Woody Allen movies always begins is, you know, I am plagued by ambivalence about Woody Allen, and so, you know, that's better. Ayo Scott, now you've written this book, and you've been doing this at the New York Times. Do you plan to write another book? Do you plan to move (laughs) into a different kind of reviewing? What's going on? I'm pretty happy where I am. I, I would not trade jobs with anyone at this at this moment. I'm working on a collection of film writing to follow this book that will take whatever I think is worth keeping of the, the writing I've been doing in the Times for the last 16 or 17 years and put it together in, in some way with some kind of connective tissue, some kind of narrative of my time there. That's what I'm working on now. And, and then, you know, in the future, there, I feel like there are some threads in Better Living Through Criticism, some questions especially about art and the value of art in our world and, and, and in our contemporary society that I could still uh, think about and do more with. But I'm not, you know, I'm not, <laughs> not making any promises yet. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.